yourself out of a job. Well, we're back in the study of Mark uh, today, and today we come to yet another example of a literary um, of a literary device that Mark has used several times through the book of Mark. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as a Markin sandwich. No, not roast beef sandwich, but a Markin sandwich. Don't get hungry. I, I know this is about that time. Um, but it's a Markin sandwich. And what we find is this, is that Mark will oftentimes begin with a story. Then he'll introduce another story before finishing the first. And then after introducing that second story, he then comes in afterwards and he finishes up the story that he begin with, be, began with. So, for example, the passage of Scripture before us this morning, he will begin uh, with, it will begin with Jesus cursing a fig tree. Then we'll find Jesus cleansing a temple. Then at the end of that, it will return to the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. Now, here's the key in understanding the st- understanding. That's not right. Understanding um, the um, these sandwiches. What you need to understand is that if you can come to understand the meaning of the outward portion of the story, what he begins with and what the end, what he ends with, then you can understand the meaning of the middle story because both of them share basically the same meaning. And so, for example, this morning, Jesus' cursing of the unfruitful fig tree stands as a visual parable to illustrate God's impending judgment that is going to come upon the temple and much of the religion that is taking part in that temple. So what is true for one is going to be true for the other. Also, if we can figure out now why it is that Jesus curses the fig tree in the first part of the story, then we'll more easily be able to determine and understand why Jesus is cursing the temple in the second portion of that story. Now, I've got to be completely honest with you. I get up very early on Sunday morning, come in, and, and sometimes I'm a little erratic. I've been studying all week, and I've, I've had this outline all week, this nifty little outline, these nifty little three points. The problem is, I realized this morning it was not so nifty. And um, so I decided to abandon those three points. Southern Baptist preachers are not ought to do that. Are, some of you laugh. Some of you, I don't know if you'll ever laugh. I'm just saying that. But anyway, for you who laugh, I'll talk to you. Um, the, um, you, you. Thanks, Joyce. You're still the only one laughing. So, Joyce, would you like to have a conversation this morning? Okay. And so what I abandoned is there's really only one point to the message this morning. There's only one point, and here it is. The, the point is this, bear fruit or die. Bear fruit or die. I didn't go with that because it doesn't sound very nice, right? I mean, it's not really something that captivates people. Hey, bear fruit or perish in eternity in hell forever, all right? It's not catchy, but in essence, it is the very essence of the point of the stories today. So let's do this as we always do. Let's just begin to walk through this passage and see what it is that the Holy Spirit would teach us this morning. Notice beginning in verse 12. It says, on the following day when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, on the following day, some of you who have been there every week, you realize that we've passed over the um, uh, Jesus coming in, the triumphal entry. Now, the reason we're going to see, we're going to pass some more passages, skip over them, because I've got to get done with this series, all right? There's something I want to preach in January, so we've got to get through this. So I'm going to pass through some of these. I know, I know, it's all important. It's all God's Word. That's why you should be studying it, 
okay? But I'm going to pass through some. But here it says that on the following day, meaning after the day of Jesus' triumphal entry, Jesus came in. He wasn't hiding the fact that he was proclaiming to be the Messiah. He fulfilled prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, by coming on a colt that had never been uh, ridden on or uh, on a donkey that had never been ridden on. He wasn't trying to hide who he was. But the people, for the most part, missed it. They seem to be excited about Jesus, at least for a period of time. They begin to wave palm branches and start to sing Hosanna in the highest and lay him down before Jesus to allow him to pass by. But by the end of the day, they were done, which means they really didn't recognize Jesus for who he is. As quickly as they became excited about Jesus, it, it just as quickly began to vanish. Now it's the next day. Jesus is returning to Jerusalem. That night, he and his disciples, we find that in the last couple weeks and days of his life, he would spend his time at night, most likely in Bethany, which was about two miles outside of Jerusalem, and he would be staying in the home of Lazarus and and Mary and Martha. So they're now returning back from Bethany to Jerusalem, and as Jesus comes, as it is for maybe for many of you, he's hungry in the morning. You ever feel that way? He's hungry in the morning, can't really stop off at the Golden Arches and get an Egg McMuffin and a coffee. Why? Because they don't have one. So he sees the next best thing. He sees a fig tree at a distance, and he sees the tree, and as he sees it, he begins to get hungry, and he wants to get closer and and see what he might be able to eat. Verse 13 says, And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Now, here's what you have to understand, a little history, for you to understand what's going on here. The fig trees in Israel, they would begin to produce their fruit before they would produce their leaves. So before any leaves were on the tree, before that nice green foliage would come about, it would already begin to produce fruit. And so if there were leaves, which there was on this, this great, beautiful, green, spectacular, flashy foliage, it was telling Jesus from a distance that it had fruit on it. If there were leaves, there would be fruit. Now, notice what happens. The Bible then says, And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he goes on in verse 14 and says, And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now this story has really given a lot of people throughout history fits. There are some who are positive towards Jesus, and they have just about abandoned this story. What they've said is we know that there are some stories that came about like Jesus taking a, a, like a, a broken clay pigeon and, and casting, creating a miracle and having it come to life. There's all kinds of stories that came about after the word of God was written and after the time of Christ. Some people say this is surely a made-up story about Jesus because it just doesn't fit the person who Jesus is. Jesus is, is sugar and spice and everything nice. There's no way that he would judge this fruit tree. In fact, this is the only miracle in the book of Mark that is a negative miracle. He's not healing here. He's actually using his power to destroy something. Now, there were others who are more negative towards Jesus. They don't like him very much. And they say, no, we believe this actually did happen. In fact, what it shows is who Jesus truly is. He is unfair. He is critical. He is harsh. And it's demonstrated with his treatment of this poor little tree. And notice that phrase, it was not the season for figs. This is where they reprimand Jesus. 
Because what they will say is, hey, listen, it wasn't even the time for figs. He shouldn't even be producing figs. And here he is cursing the poor fig tree. I mean, it was no fault of the fig tree. You, you, you following that kind of logic and that kind of thought? Well, I don't think we should really have all that much difficulty with this passage. And here's why I don't think we should struggle with it. We shouldn't struggle with it because it does say that it was not the season for figs, but it doesn't mean that there were no figs on the tree. If there were leaves, there had to be what? Figs that were being produced. But what we understand is that it was not the season, which means it wasn't the time to harvest them yet. It wasn't full of ripe fruit. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't unripened fruit on the tree. And it would have been very common during that day for people who lived during that time, if they were hungry, to go ahead and go out of their way and to eat some fruit that was not quite and fully ripened. I'm sure that you have done the same thing. I do this all the time with that crazy enigma of a fruit that we call bananas. My wife will bring a bunch of bananas home, right? And they bring them home and they're usually what? Green or green-ish when they come. And I don't like to eat green bananas, but when they come, you sit there and go, okay, I'm watching them one day, day after day. They're getting a little bit more yellow. Soon they'll be at the peak of ripeness and you wait for that very next day and they're brown, right? They're brown and your wife's like, you can't eat those. Let's put them, let's go ahead and put them in banana bread. They're banana bread. How'd they go from green to banana bread? What happened? And so I've just kind of learned at the house is, hey, listen, if they're green and you're hungry, eat it. And so Jesus pretty much is doing the same thing. And so he comes in, but why does he curse the tree? He's not cursing the tree because the fruit was not ready to be picked. He was, he was cursing it because there was no fruit at all on the tree. And so in essence, what he was doing is he was angry that the tree was professing to be a fruitful tree when it wasn't. It was professing it by all those fancy leaves. It was saying, hey, look at me. I've got fruit. Jesus takes a closer look and no fruit. Now, I understand why Jesus curses the fig tree. Because I am not a big fan of fig trees, believe it or not. But I am a huge fan of Krispy Kreme donuts. Okay? And so... I, I praise God that there is no, I, literally, I, that there is no major big store around here that's pumping those delicate, beautiful treasures of life out over the conveyor machine going underneath the wondrous um, waterfall of succulent sugars that pour all over it. Are you with me on this? And, and I know that the stores have them. It's not the same. Don't buy me some, some messed up crispy, hey, Pastor, we love you. Here's the crispy. No, no. Waterfall, sugarfall, right? And so what happens is, what do they do when you know that they're ready? It's, it's the neon sign, hot donuts now. And I don't take that as a suggestion or a declaration of truth. I take that as a command. When it says hot donuts now, it doesn't matter how hungry I am or how, how not hungry I am, it's donuts now, it's hot donuts now, it's time to go. And so one day I was down in the Mandarin area, just kind of driving around, and, and I was very, very hungry, and I drove by Hot Donuts Now all aglow. I go in, and she goes, may I help you? And I say, yes, Hot Donuts Now. Hot Donuts Now. I want a dozen Hot Donuts Now. Now, some of you are asking, a dozen donuts? It's none of your business how many donuts I have. I don't normally eat them, but I like to keep my options open. All right, so who knows? So go in, and she says, Sir, we are so incredibly sorry. We have no hot donuts right now. That was about 30 
minutes ago and I said, but your light says hot donuts now. But sir, I'm sorry, we have a lot of other donuts. I don't want any other donuts. I want hot donuts now. We don't have any. And then she shuts the light off and I leave cursing underneath my breath, you Krispy Kreme store curse you. Right? I'm very angry. Why? Because it was telling me that it had something and I had a hunger for it. But when I took a closer look, it didn't have it. This is what Jesus is going on with Jesus. Jesus wants fruit. Now, you need to understand that in the Old Testament, as well as the New, we're going to cover the significance in the New Testament in a minute. But in the Old Testament, there was great significance uh, in the Old Testament for figs. For example, sometimes it demonstrated the blessing and prosperity of God on the nation of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, it says this, the prophet spoke of Israel when he wrote, when I would gather them, declares the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong, wrong passage. First Kings 4, 24. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his own fig tree all the days of Solomon. So you know what they're saying? Man, things just didn't get any better than this. We're not talking two chickens in every pot. We're not talking about two cars in every garage. We're talking about every man has his own fig tree. It just doesn't get any better than this. It's the blessing of God on their life. But sometimes we see in the scriptures that this idea of figs or a lack thereof demonstrates the judgment of God on the nation of Israel and on others. In Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 13, it says this, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. In chapter 29, verse 17 of Jeremiah says, And I will make them like vile figs, that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. Now, it doesn't appear that Jesus is using this sign of fig trees here as a demonstration of blessing, but rather as a clear demonstration of what? Of cursing, of judgment. And so the question is, who is he judging? Well, some people have said it's the whole nation of Israel, and that could be true, but I think within the context of chapter 11 and through chapter 13, which is all about the temple, we know he is at least bringing judgment upon the temple and the religion that's going on inside of that temple. So Jesus, in essence, in light of what's going on with the fig tree, and now in light of what's going on with, with uh, this, um, the temple, he's in essence saying this, the temple is much like the fig tree. It is deceptive. On the outside, it is glorious. It looks amazing, spectacular, and promising on the outside. He says, but on closer examination, there was no real spiritual fruit or substance. Now, I know exactly, again, how Je I can identify with Jesus during this. When I was in high school, I was not nearly the man of God that I am today. I know it's hard for some of you to believe, but there was a time that I was a teenager. And, uh, and I, like many of you, did what all teenagers did when they didn't have their driver's license. We went and hung out at the mall. Do you remember this? Man, you guys are a tough group of people. I mean, I don't know where you live, what you do. But listen, did anybody ever cruise the mall when they were, right? And thank you. I'll talk with you. And, uh, and, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to tell it anyway. So I was in the mall. Parents dropped it off. And I would always have a buddy. And I was looking schwank. I was looking cool. It's back when Levi's were hard. You walked in them like this. Do you remember that, right? I had my members-only jacket on. 
It was 95 degrees out, but it was okay. I looked cool. I had a zebra comb in my back. You ever remember those big, yeah, everybody would, you know, had hair to comb during the time. Had some Ray-Bans from Top Gun. I was cool. We were styling and profiling. I was wearing those in the jacket inside the building, walking down. And all of a sudden, what do you do? You know, you got your wingman next to you. And whenever you see pretty girls, what do you do? Hey, hey, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, bogey at 12 o'clock, bogey at 12 o'clock. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 12 o'clock, right? Now, here's the truth. We never, ever, ever, ever spoke to any of these girls my entire life. But it was, it was we would just go looking, okay? We'd look, we'd never talk. We'd just be like, 12 o'clock. Well, whoever said, hey, bogey 12 o'clock, bogey 1 o'clock, bogey 11 o'clock, whatever it is, you would know to be able to look to that area. And so you'd look to that area, but sometimes you'd get it wrong. And the person would very quickly realize they got it wrong. And so they would have to be able to pull up, pull up, pull up, right? They'd have to be able to get, and so this is what would happen. As the closer that you got, you'd begin to realize, well, maybe she's not nearly as attractive as maybe I declared that she was. And so the person would say, GFF, GFF, GFF. And the other person, the closer she got, and you realize, no, she's not attractive at all. They would say, FFG, FFG, FFG. And you'd go and walk off. Now, what did that stand for? It stood for good from far, but far from good, all right? (laughs) Now, you who are evil and wicked of heart who laugh at that, I'll just tell you, it's just what we did. It wasn't, I'm not saying do it, I'm just saying this is what happened. And so when Jesus finds that this fig tree, and not only the fig tree, but also the temple, when he gets there, He realizes that it looks fantastic on the outside, but is nothing but corrupt and empty on the inside. Now, what's going on here? We'll look at verse 15 and 19. We see the judgment come, or part of that judgment. And they came to Jerusalem, and they entered into the temple, and they began to drive out those who sold and those who bought. He goes, in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, what in the world is going on? Well, first understand that this is the third Jewish temple that had been built. First one had been built approximately a thousand years, approximately a thousand years before this time by Solomon. Then it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel in approximately 500 years before this. This particular construction began by Herod in approximately 19 to 20 uh, BC, so about 20 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus came uh, to this uh, to this particular place, he would he would um, he, he would immediately enter into what was known as the court of the Gentiles. This was the largest court. There's four major divisions. This is the larger division. It would have stood about, it would have had about 500 yards long by about 325 yards wide. It encompassed close to 35 acres of property. This was the place where the Gentiles could come and pray and worship God. And so what we find is uh, inside of that would have been the court of the women and that's how far the women could go to the temple, as close as they could get. Inside of that would be, uh, would be um, the court of Israel, which only men, circumcised Jewish men, were allowed in. Uh, then finally you would come to the court, and only the priests were allowed there. And in the Holy of Holies, only the, the chief priest would be allowed, the high priest would be allowed, and only once a year to be able to go in and to be able to sacrifice and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on behalf of God's people. Now, when Jesus began to approach this, it would have been an awe-inspiring sight. It would have been very fancy. He would have seen outside, there was a huge portico that really surrounded uh, 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 that court of Gentiles, and it was held up by these massive 
pillars 35 feet high. And they were so big around that Josephus, the Jewish historian, said they were so big around that it would take three full-grown men to link arms to be able to get around the bottom of that pillar. And it was lined up and completely surrounded by this huge portico and all these amazing pillars. The pillars were made of beautiful marble there would be gold that would crown the top of it they would come in and they would see the in the morning the sun would be glistening and it would be shining and it would be bright and it would be absolutely spectacular but when jesus got into the courtyard everything began to fall apart the courtyard of the gentiles understand was for this purpose it was to allow outsiders those who were not jews to be able to come, a place for prayer, a place for worship, and even more importantly, a place for evangelism. It was where the Jews would lead others to faith in their God. Remember a couple of weeks we talked about the purpose of the temple? The temple was so glorious and so, uh, so amazing. Why? Because they served an amazing God. And as they came and they said, we want to come and see your amazing, uh, uh, your amazing temple, they would say, well, listen, it's all directed because we serve an amazing God. And then they would use it as a tool to be able to share the truth of who their one God was. The problem here is just flat out is that there's not a whole lot of worshiping, there's not a whole lot of prayer, and there's not a whole lot of evangelism coming. And the difficulty is, is this is the farthest that the Gentiles can go to the temple. They can't go anywhere else. In fact, there was a sign of warning that was put up between them and also the court of the women, which read this, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall, give himself, shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. They were not to cross that line. They had to stay in the court of the Gentiles, this place of prayer. But it was not a place of prayer. When Jesus saw such a promising exterior and got in, he didn't follow up, find prayer and worship and evangelism. He, find, he found so many other things. He found, first of all, defecating animals everywhere. Now, here's the key People would come, and it was during the Passover, so people had to be able to bring different animals and different spices and different salts and wines and things like that that they would have to use during, during the Passover to sacrifice animals unto God. Now, there was nothing wrong uh, with, with buying it there in Jerusalem. In fact, it was actually very convenient. Imagine living 100 miles away from there, 50 miles away, and you had to walk, and you had to get Bessie, or, you know, your cow or whatever it is, some 50 miles. By the time you got there, it wouldn't be much of a sacrifice. So it was nice. It was kind of like one-stop shopping, right? You know, hey, listen, don't worry about it. We'll get there. We'll buy the pigeon or we'll buy the lamb or whatever it is that we need when we get there. Now, there was nothing wrong with this. In fact, for, for many, many years, they were, they were using the Mount of Olives, which was right next to the temple mount and the temple itself. And so people would go there, and that's where they would do work. Well, one day, um, somebody just kind of came up with a good idea. And what they ultimately said is, hey, listen, let's, let's bring them in. Let's start selling our own animals right here to compete with the guys over the Mount of Olives. And they're going to like ours because it's like Walmart. You can get everything. Get your food, get a lawnmower, whatever it is. One-stop shopping, you can get it all done here. So now stop and think about this. As they begin to bring the animals in, imagine how animal, many animals it must have been. Imagine the sight. Imagine the smells. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, told us that in AD 65, which took place about 30 years after this particular event, what we find is this, is that he, he says that there were two, 255,600 lambs that were slain over the Passover. That was just lambs. 
had nothing to do with all the other animals and all the other birds and all the other kind of livestock that was going to ultimately be killed during that place. You, you, you tracking with me? So what they found is instead of finding this place of prayer, they found a place with animals everywhere defecating all over the place. So they found defecating animals, but they also found money-grubbing Sadducees. In Exodus chapter 30 and verse 13 through 16, a temple tax had to be paid, according to God, by everyone who was 20, every Jew that was 20 years and older to be able to take care of that temple. So they would come in and it would cost them a half a shekel. Well, the problem is they didn't, most of these folks didn't have shekels. They didn't deal with shekels. They, they dealt with uh, really Roman coinage and they didn't want to receive the Roman coinage because it had the picture of their Caesars and their gods on it. So they had to exchange the money before they could go and begin to buy the supplies for sacrifice. You with me? And so they would bring it in. And so what the Sadducees did, the religious leaders did, is they said, listen, we'll help you. And we'll go ahead and help you get the money that you ultimately need. We'll be an exchange system for you. So what they begin to do is they begin to do it for them, but not as a ministry. They begin to do it to be able to make money. They would charge a small fee of 124th of a shekel, but what happened is they were doing it in order to be able to get rich. They were using religion and they were using the temple to try to make money for themselves, and Jesus wants nothing to do with it. So third thing that was going on in the temple that day, we see lazy people seeking a shortcut. Look at verse 16. It tells us, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, we can't be exactly sure of what's going on here, but historically what we understand is that the, the, the temple made a wonderful cross shortcut. Here was the, 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 the Mount of Olives on one side, and then uh, on the other side was a part of the city where people wanted to be, kind of close to, uh, to the temple. And so what they would do is they said, man, to walk all the way around this thing would just take so much extra time. Let's just cross through. And when they crossed through, guess where they got to cross through at? right through the place where the Gentiles were supposed to be worshiping. And Jesus has enough of this. He begins to drive people out. He begins to turn over tables. And then in verse 17, notice what he says. And here he quotes from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. He says, my house shall be, a, shall be called a house of what? Prayer. Not a marketplace. Shall be called a house of prayer. Why? He says, for all the what? Nations. He says, Jewish people, you believe that this is all about you. You believe this temple is you. You think a relationship with God is only for you. It's not just about you. It's for all people in all nations, for every tongue, for every people group, for every language, for every tribe. Revelation chapter 5, 7, 11, that shares these trees. not one God of one people. He's a God of all people. And so what they do is he's telling them this, but what does it do? Is it a house of prayer? No. He says, but you have made a den of robbers. This is what you've ultimately turned it into. So what we find is that these people have absolutely no true inclination, love towards God, love towards their fellow man. They're not doing anything. They're just like that fancy fig tree. They look so good on the outside. They seem to have it all together, but you take a closer look and they are spiritually bankrupt. And the Bible says here, it says, Mark then writes, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And Mark continues to write, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its root. And just a few years later, in, in 70 uh, AD, 
the whole temple would be ultimately destroyed and the judgment of God would come down upon it. Do you remember when I said that it was significant? Fig trees and figs were significant in the Old Testament. Remember that? I said it's significant because it demonstrates what? It demonstrates two things, either the prosperity from God or the judgment from God on his people. There's also great significance in the New Testament, and this is where you need to get this. Fruit, and specifically the fruit from the fig tree in the New Testament, are works that give evidence that somebody is truly in the faith. We do not believe at Celebration Baptist Church that you are saved by your religion. We don't believe that you're saved because of the good things that you ultimately do. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We believe that wholeheartedly. We hold to that. We are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But this is what we do know. We do know that those who are saved are always changed of God from their inside out. And there will always be change in their life. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. Do you understand that? Your life will be changed. Our community is filled with people, churches filled with people who will say what? I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Why? I believe. But if you look at their life, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? And Jesus says, here's why this question for us is so important. No fruit, no life. No fruit, no life. Now, this is a consistent teaching all the way through the word of God. Do you remember the parable of the sower and the seed? Do you guys remember this? Parable of the sower and the seed. Sower goes and sows some seed, takes a seed. He sows it on various types of soils. You guys with me? All right. If it goes on various kinds of soils, but it only, it only falls on one good soil, and the good soil produces life, but what does it ultimately produce? Fruit. He says, of all the people that listen to the gospel, of all the people who responded to the gospel, The only ones who are truly born again are those who demonstrate fruit, which is consistent with conversion. You following me? Now, we find that throughout the word of God in John chapter 15 in verse 5. Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He says, "Uh, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, if I'm in you, you will produce fruit. You will do works which is consistent with me. You will be like me if I'm saved because apart from me, you can't do anything. You can't can't be like me. Then notice what he says. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are are gathered, thrown into the fire and they're burned. He says anybody who professes to be Jesus Christ or goes through a religion but doesn't demonstrate true conversion, which is evidenced by their works, not for salvation, but because they have been saved, he goes, they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's the same message that John the Baptist brought in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, and now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and it is thrown into the fire. Here's the warning. There are churches all over America that are fancy and flashy on the outside. Man, they look so good. I mean, they look awesome. I mean, they not only have trams to pick you up, they're putting in monorails, man. They got monorails like Disney World to pick you up. You'll never have to walk again. Isn't that amazing? They'll pick you up and they'll usher you right in. That's smooth. This is awesome. This is amazing. 
you go in, everything is in its perfect place. Nothing. The PowerPoint is always perfect. The lighting is perfect. The timing is perfect. Everything is The guy looks so perfect. As you can tell, we're not going for perfect here. It used to drive me nuts when, when somebody on the, not, not saying this to anybody, but I love you, anybody that would come and serve on the PowerPoint is great. It used to drive me crazy. I'm like, where's the word? Why can't you get the word right? I kind of like it now. <laughs> somebody doesn't hit, you know, the appropriate note. Hey, kind of good. Hey, you, here's why. Here's why it is for me. Because real life is not perfect. When we come to the church and all of them, everybody, everybody look perfect and let's just put on perfection. Let's all look perfect and happy and have everything perfect. People sit there and, the, and the, now listen, we're not fighting for ugly. All right, we're not fighting for that. We're not trying for that. We're trying to give excellence to God. But it's so good whenever we mess up because we're like, that's how life is, right? I mean, you sit there, you got it all together, you worked all week and then pfft, there you go. Just doesn't look very good. We stumble. We fall in many ways. But there's so many churches, bro. They, their budgets are immense. The population of their people are incredible. Their buildings are unreal. Everybody knows about them. But here's the question. Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit and the evidence that things of God have truly occurring? Where's the fruit here? Listen, just because we may make budget or just because we may even grow in numbers has nothing to do with what we're doing here truly has something to do with God. If we want to, grow, if we want to get a bigger building and more things, I'm going to start preaching something completely different. I can't preach messages like produce fruit or die. You don't grow under messages like that. Are you with me? You, you tracking with me this morning? So it's same true as for churches, but it's same for people as well. There's, you meet people all the time, every week. How you doing? Oh, great. And I love when people don't know that I'm a preacher, right? And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes people know me because I have been voted the best of the best in Nassau County. <laughs> of course, I haven't found one single person who's voted for me. So I'm really not sure how that's come about, but... When I go and, you know, and when the people haven't seen my picture in the paper, when I go and see the commoner, the undetached people from society, and I sit there and I say, well, listen, how are you? And I begin to talk with them, and we just begin to talk. You know, they're just kind of normal, throwing out the cuss words, whatever, and this sounds bad to you because you want to get it. I'm just, that's refreshing to me. They're just being themselves, right? Not trying to dress up. So, so what do you do for a living? Oh, no, here it goes. Well, I'm a motivational speaker. Well, <laughs> You are, yes, that's what I do, motivational speaker. I, okay, I'm a, I'm a pastor down at so Oh, pastor, well, I went to church once. Really? Oh, yes, oh, yes, and my grandpappy, yes, he has a stained glass window that was given on behalf of the church on, on his behalf. And so we go through all of these things. And so what we find is what I really want to look at is where's the fruit? Look, I see your leaves. I see all your leaves. I mean, you look spectacular. You look great on the outside. You look like the real deal. Here's the problem. I've got to really, you got to listen quicker. Let me, let me get this down. Here's the tough part. The tough part is distinguishing the difference between leaves and fruit. I feel like that's where we have our biggest problem. Let me read a couple things for you. You tell me if these are leaves and fruit. Don't, 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 don't yell out, okay? All right? Are these leaves or are these fruit? Visible morality. Knowledge of God. Religious involvement, active ministry, conviction of sin, and a time of decision. Don't answer. 
It's leaves. It's not fruit. If I were to say that I was taking part in every single one of those things, if I knew the word of God, if I was being an upstanding person, living a moral life, if I was religiously involved, if I was active in doing good things in the community, if I felt bad when every time that I sinned, and if I had made a decision and signed a card and walked an aisle, most of you would be convinced that I'm a born-again believer, and all that is are leaves. That a believer can do those things, but an unbeliever can do those just as easily. The problem is, is the unbeliever is trusting in those things to save them. You say, well, what does fruit look like? Well, he gives us a little bit of an example of it. He says three things. I've got to hurry very quickly. Verse 22, go back and read it. Verse 22, he says, have faith. Faith what? Faith to move mountains. That is faith radical enough to be saved, to place your whole weight on Jesus Christ. Faith that brings about the impossible. What is that conversion? Number two, prayer. Verse 24, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Consistent, daily, continual prayer shows a complete and utter dependence upon God. What's the third? Forgiveness. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So what do we see here? What do we understand this to be? He says, if you've, been taste, if you've tasted of the grace and the mercy of God, then you have no problem being able to bestow the forgiveness to other people. It's evidence that you're truly saved. You say, Mike, Break it down for us. And I don't mean dancing. Break it down for us. What does it look like? What does that fruit look like? It means that you love Jesus, man. You love him. I want you to look at your heart. You love Jesus. If he never did anything for you, you love him. You love God. You are in a continual action of repenting of sin. It's not just that you feel bad about it. You know how that people is? People sit there and they'll live a life of hell for 20 years and you look back and they go, yeah, I think I was saved all that time. But you were a drug dealer for 20 years. You ran a prostitution ring for 20 years. Yeah, but I felt convicted about my sin. I always felt guilty, kept sinning. Well, congratulations, you have a conscience, human being. It's not the person... Leaves are feeling bad fruit is repenting and turning from that sin. Devotion to God's glory. These people had cared nothing, listen, cared nothing about people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're truly born again, I promise you, you are concerned for the souls of the people around you. And I and many in this church are not, in here at Celebration of Baptist Church, we're not only concerned for our family, we're concerned for the families around the world. Not just in our local community, yes, but around the world, we're convinced. It's fruit. Selfless love. We've talked about that all the way through this week. Separation from the world. I don't want to go back into the things of the world anymore. I have a distaste for it. Spiritual growth. And here's the biggest thing. Just consistent, obedient living towards the things of God. That's fruit, which is consistent with repentance. Now, let me say this last thing, and we'll say this in close. What we understand from the scriptures is this. Do you know why Jesus condemns and curses the temple? Yes, because a lot of bad things are happening there. But do you know why? Because he's about to replace the temple. He's in essence saying, you cannot be right with God. And it used to be that life with God was central around the temple. 
He goes, but now, forever, to be right with God will be centralized around me, Jesus Christ. He even says later in the book, and we'll study this, he will say this. He will say, if you rip down this temple, I'll be able to put it back in three days. But what they find out is he's not talking about the physical temple. It will be torn down in 70 AD in judgment of God. But his body will be torn down, and on three days he will rise again. And he rises again, demonstrating that the sacrifice for sin had been paid in full, and the wrath of God had been fully extinguished. And so now you and I, who repent of our sin, recognize ourselves as sinners, repent of our sin, and place our faith completely on the completed work of Jesus Christ, we might have life. And we don't begin to produce fruit because we're just trying harder. We produce fruit because he changes us from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5.17 For if we are in Christ, we are new creatures. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning. God, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would move in the hearts and lives of our folks. God, here's, here's why I'm so troubled. I'm troubled in my heart because across this place, there are people full of leaves, but no fruit. Church, yes. Working, yes. Giving, yes. But God, they have no relationship with you. You care nothing of religion. You want a relationship through Jesus Christ. I pray that you will all call any who are here who are not saved to be saved today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm gonna ask you to stand. We're gonna have a time of response here this morning. Would you stand? The altars are open. If you wanna come and pray, if you wanna talk, I'm here to talk and to pray with you. Would you respond as we sing?